you can open your Bibles to First uh, John. We're going to have a theological adventure this morning. This is one of those how we use the Bible to do theology Sundays. So don't freak out. Don't get scared. It's not that hard. But I do want you to listen. Um, so I've never addressed this topic before in the 30-something years I've been here. But um, it, a lot of things came together, mainly that we're in First John chapter 2. So <laughs> that's the main thing. It was a big topic of conversation at the IFCA convention, at least on the sidelines. So um, something we want to address here today. It's important to know how to use the Bible properly. It's important to think through how we develop doctrines from the Bible and also how we regard other people that differ over what I would call a non-essential matter, right? How do we treat each other and how do we relate to each other? Every Christian has to grow in their faith and their understanding of scripture. That's what God wants for us. So in today's text, which is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, there's a controversy that surrounds it and it gives us a great opportunity because we're here to discuss how these doctrines should be developed from the word of God and to realize that sometimes people come to different conclusions about things based on all kinds of reasons and thinking and scriptural understandings. But So we're going to talk about Reformed theology today, what is commonly called Calvinism. So our church doctrine, our doctrinal statement for our church is the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. It, it grows out of the Reformed tradition, and uh, we believe that theological stream regarding our salvation is, in general, a really good stream to drink from. In other words, uh, we, we agree with a lot of what's there. If people ask me if I'm Reformed in my theology, I always say yes. But if I tell Reformed people what I believe exactly, some of them are going to turn their nose up and say, well, you're not really Reformed, which is fine. That's okay. You're not a true Calvinist. And, and if you define it a certain way, that's true. I'm not. So the issue we're going to tackle today in our verse, 1 John 2, 2, goes to the area where some Reformed people would regard me and a lot of other people as woefully lacking in being a truly Reformed person. And I don't mind that at all. Because theological systems are not infallible. They are the work of men, right? So uh, while it's natural to think that our guys are always correct about everything, that's actually not usually true. And uh, we have to measure everything by, the, thank you, somebody said it, the Bible. Good, good girl. <laughs> Only the Bible is infallible. So theological systems, while they're worked out by good men that are trying really hard to get it right, they're not infallible, right? So we should not, though many people do, some people measure the Bible by their doctrinal statement. Like, well, this is what our church is supposed to believe, so whatever the Bible says, I'm going to make it fit my doctrinal thing. That's the opposite of the way it should work. Your doctrinal statement should always be submitted to the authority of Scripture. And I think everybody pretty much tries to do that, but sometimes, literally, the commitment is to the doctrinal statement more than the Bible. And I've noticed that a number of times over the years. So the Bible comes first, and creeds and doctrinal statements and things like that have to be measured by it. Is that, are we all on the same page with that one? Okay, good. You're tracking with me, good. So let me read verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2, and then we'll discuss the issue that it addresses. So I'm going to start in the middle of verse 1, where it says, and if anyone sins, everybody see that? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So the last part of that is the kicker point here. Not for ours only, 
but also for those of the whole world. So propitiation is to satisfy God's wrath, to appease him so that we can be saved by him. That's the idea there. So the question is for, the, the big theological question is, for whom did Jesus die while he was on the cross? For whom did he die while he was on the cross? Now, most people, if you're just reading your Bible and you come up to 1 John 2, 2, you would say, obviously, he dies for everyone, right? He's, he's given his life for everyone. Most Calvinists would say most, not all, but most Calvinists would say no. He only died for the elect, those that God had ordained to eternal life. And they would ask, how can people whose sin that Christ paid for not be saved? If he paid for their sins, they're saved. That's, that's the logic of it. And it's a good question. So we're going to deal with that question this morning. So when we use the name Calvinism, there's all sorts of... We're only sort of talking about John Calvin, okay? So Calvinism and John Calvin are not the same thing. Um, usually when people say Calvinism, we're talking about the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-T. The Synod of Dort, which gave out these five statements. And it's actually in your bulletin. I put those statements in your bulletin just to make this easy. There should be a white piece of paper in there. And this is just a summary of what these points are. So what happened was um, Holland was a very Calvinistic, reformed country after, you know, the big breakup of the Catholic Church. But there was a, a group of people that strongly disagreed with Calvinism. And so they put forth these five things called the remonstrance. And so that caused the reformed people in, in uh in Holland to come together and create a response to that. So Calvinism isn't these points. Calvinism is these great doctrinal statements like the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and all, the, all these wonderful things that grew out of that world. So, but, but in the popular mind and when people are talking about theology, these five points are supposed to be Calvinism. But, and they do identify unique aspects of Calvinism, but Calvinism is these great creedal statements, the Westminster Confession of Faith and all that. It's not these, but these are the famous sort of measuring stick that people use. So I'm just going to walk through them real quick with you. So, so the Dutch Reformed Church called a council to respond to the five statements of the remonstrance, and these are them. So if you've ever heard of the five points of Calvinism, they, they didn't come from John Calvin. They came from the Synod of Dort, okay? John Calvin died in 1564. The Synod of Dort happened in 1618, so it's like 50 years after he was gone. So they're not directly tied to him in any particular way. All right, and they make an acrostic. If, you've ever, if you know anything about theology, you know tulip is the thing. There's five points, and you go T-U-L-I-P. And if you're a good Calvinist, you'll believe all, all five. That's what we're told. Okay, so the first one is total depravity. Fallen man is so resistant to God. We're very fallen. We're so fallen that nobody's going to respond to God unless God does something. So Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead to God. We don't, we don't have any interest in the real God. We use everything we can to get away from him. We ignore the real God. We don't we reject his salvation. We replace all kinds of other things in, in his place. We're idolaters. And then the other aspect of total depravity is that the fall has wrecked every part of our nature. We're, all of us are corrupt and all of our faculties are corrupted. Our physical bodies, our will, our affections, our thinking, everything's tainted by, our, by the fall of man, okay? The second one is unconditional election. If all of us are so depraved that we cannot come to God without God's assistance, in this case it would be what we call regeneration in the Bible, um, by the irresistible grace of God, then it is clear that salvation 
of any of us is owing to God's election. In other words, if we can't save ourselves and we're so wicked we won't respond to God's reaching out to us, God has to do something in us to create that. And, and God elects who he's going to do that to before the foundation of the world. That's pretty clear teaching in the Bible. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 1. You can look that up. The third one is limited atonement because God determined that certain ones should be saved as a result of unconditional election. He determined that Christ should die for the elect alone. That's our question today, right there, right? All whom God has elected or for whom Christ died will be saved. But if you're not elect, you're not, he didn't die for you. That's, that's that one. Irresistible grace. Those who God elected, he draws to himself through irresistible grace. God makes man willing to come to him. And when God calls, man responds. First Timothy 1.9 is a good example of that in the Bible. Perseverance of the saints is the last one. The precise ones that God has elected and drawn to himself through the Holy Spirit will persevere in faith. None whom God has elected will be lost. They are eternally secure. Peter says we're kept by the power of God. So um, that's very clear in scripture as well. So anyway, I'm not going to get through, uh, go through all of those. That's different topics, each one. But these five points have come to define what Calvinism is as opposed to other things. And Calvinist credentials are often measured by these things. So our doctrinal statement in our church, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, is considered by people that study these things, mildly Calvinistic. Well, how can you be mildly Calvinistic, right? So, um, because it only affirms four of the five points. So, one of the Senate of Dort's five points always seems to be the very one that a fairly large minority of Calvinists do not affirm. They say, I can't go there. That's not right. And guess which one it is? The L. It's the L. I don't know of anybody who says, I believe in four out of the five, but I reject total depravity. I don't know anybody, anybody ever that believes four out of the five, but rejects total depravity. Or I believe four of the five, but reject unconditional election. I don't know anybody that says that. Or irresistible grace or perseverance of the saints. It's always the L. Always. It's always limited atonement. That's the controversial point, even among Calvinists, whether that is an appropriate doctrinal position or not. And there's a reason for that, and you can probably guess what it is. It doesn't have very strong biblical support, and the idea that Christ died for the sins of the world, it's like right here. So it has strong biblical support, okay? So in too many places, the Bible just seems to clearly say that Christ died for the sins of the world. For example, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And of course, that leads to a logical question. How could, he, how could Christ be especially the Savior of believers if he only died for believers, right? So that's a logical question out of that. Now, does the Bible teach that Christ died for the elect? Does, he, does it teach that he died for believers? Yeah, like abundantly it says that everywhere, constantly, many times. Just a couple of examples. 
John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So who's he's laying down his life for? The sheep, right? Acts 20, 28, Paul was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders and he said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So who did he pur what did he purchase with his own blood? The church, right? So the believers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Who did he die for? For us, he says, right? God has not destined us for wrath. So clearly, Scripture emphasizes the wonderful blessing of Christ's death for believers. And it's pretty obvious why that is. The New Testament, all the New Testament letters are written to believers. So um, it makes sense that he would emphasize that or focus on that. But no matter how many scriptures describe the, the blessings of Christ's death for believers, for the elect, there's not one scripture that says he died only for the elect. There never says that. It never says, he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for those of the whole world. It never says anything like that. And that's why that one L is called into question by so many people. He's not a savior for the whole world, they would say, or he's a savior for us only. It's the, the, there's no scriptures that say that, that he's the savior of us only. That, those limiting words, only, and um, not the whole world, things like that, it could say that, but it never says that never says anything like that. So the limit atonement folks focus on what you would call God's intention. God intended for Christ to die for the elect and to bear their sins and to redeem them. Now is that true? Of course it's true. Yeah, of course Christ, God's intention is to save those who believe through Christ's death. But the question for that is, since that's just a theological idea, sort of being reasoned out through these uh, passages or, or the logic of, of election, isn't it possible that God has more than one intention, more than one intention in regard to the death of Jesus? Of course God's intention was to save those who believe through the death of Christ. Could he have another intention along with that? That's the question. Is it possible that God wants to offer the salvation that Jesus accomplished even to those who will not accept it? Could he have a reason for doing that? And can he offer it because, can he even offer that to everyone if there's no reality behind the offer? So if I tell people Christ died for your sins, but he didn't, but he, he might if you accept him, that's a different thing than saying Jesus paid for your sins. If you will accept him, that payment will cover your sins. It will be yours. So Romans uh, 10.11, Brooke read it earlier, the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I think it means that a, a, a lot of salvation is offered, it, it, it very much means that salvation is offered to anyone whether they accept it or not. Salvation is being offered to anyone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There has to be something real behind those words to say that. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's got to be a salvation to be had. 
many people are uncomfortable with claiming, proclaiming a gospel that isn't real for everyone. And that's where the L gets sort of questioned by a lot of people. Even if people won't call on the name of the Lord, and even if they can't call upon the name of the Lord without a saving work of God in the heart that only God can do, the fact that God offers what people reject still magnifies his grace. He's still offering it to everyone. And it reveals at the same time the utter sinfulness of man, that people will not take it. They don't want it. They don't get it. It doesn't apply to me. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Men love darkness rather than light, as John says in John chapter 3. So the T in tulip is true, total depravity. That's attested to all through the scriptures and just in life, right? Human rejection demonstrates how dark the human heart is. So now go with me to John chapter 3 and let's talk about that. It's a well-known verse there, John 3.16, right? But John 3.16 doesn't stand by itself. Let's start at John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So you remember what happened? God brought a great plague of snakes and poisonous serpents on the people of Israel and they made this bronze servant and they put it on a pole or a, a, maybe even a cross and lifted it up and whoever looked at it was healed from this venomous poison. And Jesus compares his being lifted up on the cross to that. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man be lifted up must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. He goes on. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There's a lot of intent in that passage we just read through. God's intent in the work of Christ on the cross is to show his great love for the world. That's clear. And his willingness to receive all who believe. That's clear. And even if people never call upon the Lord apart from God's doing the saving work in the heart, faith is still a gift. But the fact that God offers what people reject magnifies God's love and God's grace and reveals the utter wickedness of human beings at the same time. So God has multiple intentions for offering salvation to all people. God offers free mercy to all sinners and Jesus paid the price of all sin. But most people will shrug that off. So men really do love darkness rather than light. So Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The word can, that means capacity or ability. No one has the ability to come to Jesus unless it has been granted him from the Father. That's total depravity. We can't do it unless God does it. 
And that's also the reason for unconditional election. And that's also the reason for irresistible grace. Because we won't do it on our own. We won't come. We can't. We can't. But Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. So what's the great thing he did? We were dead, but God made us alive. Those are the key verbs in there. We were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul says, and then raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, pers- that's eternal security. That's the P right there. We're secure in Christ. So God saves us by awakening us, by making us alive, by regeneration, which makes us see that we're sinful, that Christ is wonderful and glorious. We see his love for us and his sacrifice for us. And grace draws us to put our trust in him for our salvation. So God saves us by that great work that he does in us. So if you're a true Christian, God has regenerated your heart to love and trust his son. God does it because we won't do it. That's what Calvinism gets right. And scripture is very clear about that. But I don't think we need to limit the atonement to see all of these wonderful truths of God's grace. In fact, I think it's quite different. I think God's grace is magnified when you understand that Christ died for the whole world. Now, of course, the saving effect of the atonement is limited, right? Because who's saved? Believers. The salvation won on the cross, the full payment for sins, is applied to us when we believe. Martin Luther said, when we put our faith in Christ, we're so glued to him that that our sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours. That's that great exchange that happens right there. So it's applied to us when we believe. There's still a purpose behind that great salvation that speaks to everyone for believers and unbelievers. And that's why John 3.16 is in the Bible. In fact, you know who we can ask about John 3.16? An intention, God's intention? We can actually ask John Calvin. If you take Calvin's commentaries and open them up, the first, I mean, John chapter 3, verse 16, he says this. It is talking about John 3.16. God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. It is a remarkable commendation of faith that it frees us from everlasting destruction. For he intended expressly to state that though we appear to have been born to death, undoubted deliverance is offered to us by the faith of Christ. And therefore, we ought not to fear death, which otherwise hangs over us. And he has employed the universal term, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is the import of the term world, which he formerly used, for though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than the entrance into life." So clearly he sees an intention on God's part to the whole world in the saving work of Christ. And I should mention again that, you know, the Synod of Dort, we call that the five points of Calvinism. But Calvin, in all of his voluminous writings and his, just his commentaries are like huge, just like an encyclopedia of stuff. He says almost nothing about what the canons of Dort would call limited atonement. And the other four points Calvin talks about all the time. But the idea that Christ only died for the elect is not a significant feature in his thinking at all. 
you have to look really hard, in fact, to find anything that even sounds like limited atonement in Calvin's own writing. So that's why the word Calvinism really shouldn't be connected to all five points necessarily. And not even all theologians at the Synod of Dort agreed with limited atonement. That was quite a discussion amongst them as well, and not all of them were in favor of including that idea. So it's always been the most controversial of the five points in the Calvinist world. But proponents of limited atonement are very passionate to affirm its importance. Sometimes they call it definite atonement or particular atonement. You can check that out too. So what do they do when you crash into something like 1 John 2, 2? Because they, they think their system is biblical, and obviously they would think that, and they strongly believe that the entire Calvinist system depends on limited atonement. So what are they going to do with a verse when they crash into it like 1 John 2, 2? Well, let me tell you what they would do. So it's talking about the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, turning away God's wrath, not just for us, but for the whole world. So how do you explain that away? Well, the oldest Calvinist view, the oldest view, so, you know, commentaries were being written way back in the 1600s and 1700s, going all the way back to the 17th century, and it's still used today. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting how this is used today. Many people who hold to a limited atonement claim that John is talking about Jews when he says us, and he's talking about Gentiles when he says, but for those of the whole world. They say that John was writing his letter to Jewish believers, and they quickly point to a really, as soon as they say that, they always, always jump. Well, I can't say always because I haven't read everything, but everything I could read on this from limited atonement people is they immediately take you to John chapter 11 where a very wicked man, the high priest Caiaphas, the man who put Jesus to death, makes a prophecy. So in John chapter 11 verse 50, Caiaphas says to his henchmen, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation, that the whole nation not perish. So he's saying, we're killing Jesus to save the nation. And then John, writing John's gospel, he comments on what he said. Even though Caiaphas hated Jesus and was an unbeliever, he said Caiaphas actually spoke a true prophecy because of the office that he held. He was the high priest, so God actually revealed to him a truth, and it came out in his hateful comment, Jesus has to die for the sake of the nation. So, here's John 11:51. John says, Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And now the limited atonement folks would say, that's exactly the same grammatical instruction that you see in 1 John 2.2. 2. Not only, but also this. It's the same exact grammatical structure. So in John 11, it's not for the nation only, but the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so, here John is extending Caiaphas' wor words, die for the nation, to include other peoples. Probably the Gentiles is what he's talking about there. That's what John would probably be talking about there. So, for a first-year seminary student, super eager Calvinist type, that settles it right there. Similar grammar, right there. Same kind of grammatical structure. And the idea of Jew and Gentile, right there. So we can carry over to a letter John wrote in Asia Minor 50 years after Caiaphas said that and say 
the church, he's writing to Jewish people. And he's referring to the extension of the gospel to Gentile people. But that won't work. You can't carry the meaning over to 50 years later because the world was totally different 50 years later. We have no reason to believe that John wrote 1 John to a Jewish audience. I mean, there is zero evidence for that. Although many people believe that in the 1600s and the 1700s because um, they, were, they were more committed to limited atonement. So that's how they read that into that thing. But he did not write as a Jew to other Jews about Gentile inclusion. That just wasn't an issue when John wrote 1 John. Grammatical similarity doesn't have anything to do with content. It's just, it's just grammar. So the content isn't relevant to that. The content, the, con the, the, uh, the, the gr grammar isn't relevant to that, I say. It's, grammar is not nearly as important as historical context. And so we believe in a historical, grammatical way of interpreting the Bible. What is going on at the time? That's super important. So the word ours in 1 John 2.2 is not Jewish Christians. Now John is a Jew, but that doesn't mean he's writing to Jewish Christians as a Jew. He's, he's talking about Christians, period. Ours. John tells us in 1 John 5.13 who he is actually writing to. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's written to believers. He's writing to believers, right? You who believe. He's writing to believers and the church when John wrote 1 John was not only full of Gentiles, it was predominantly Gentile. John was not pastoring a church in a Jewish area. He wasn't in Alexandria or Jerusalem or Antioch or anything like that. He was in Ephesus. He was in Asia Minor. The church by the end of the first century was overwhelmingly Gentile. So if he says ours, he's talking about a predominantly Gentile church. He's writing to the believers of the church he knew was full of Gentiles. What was he writing about? We've talked about it already in John chapter 1 and all leading up in all of our previous messages. What's he writing about? What was going on? He's talking about the danger of the cult of Gnosticism, this new perverse form of Christianity that had arisen. It's a cult. So it's very certain that 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, our sins refers to believers and not ours only, has to refer to those outside of Christ, to the whole world. It really doesn't have any meaning other than that. Because John is writing against Gentile, Greek-influenced Gnostics. He's not writing to Jews or about Judaism. Now, if it was Paul in AD 50, you could make that assumption. Because Paul was writing against Judaizers who were coming into the church to corrupt the church and he was dealing with those things. But this is John in AD 85 or AD 90 dealing with a Christianity that's corrupted by Greek philosophy. Gnostics believed that salvation was only for the few and that they could have it by secret wisdom, right? And John says, no, Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. It's a complete opposite of the of a Gnostic idea. And that's who he's addressing with this book. Anyone could be granted forgiveness through Christ by faith because his sacrifice was sufficient for all people. That's what John is saying. You don't need secret knowledge. You just need faith. You just need faith in Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. So the idea that writing John is writing to Jews as a Jew 
it just doesn't have any support. And I couldn't find one modern day commentary, if you will, by the most excellent people that says that John was writing to Jews as a Jew, that he's, his intention in writing the book is to address Jews. Nobody says that. But if you read an article on limited atonement, the people defending limited atonement will always come back to what they said in the 1600s or 1700s. John is writing to Jews. They'll say that because that's kind of, your argument kind of falls apart if that's not true. But First John isn't written by a Jew to Jews. That's not what's going on there. So, one more element here. We also have in John's letter itself, we have another use of the words, the whole world. So it's the immediate letter, same context. First John 5, 19, right at the end of the book, John says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's the exact same phrase he uses in chapter 2, verse 2. Same words, the whole world. That's everybody. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world system is, is under Satan. It's wicked. So let's just consider that uh, instead of this idea that um, the world is only means the Gentile world in, in chapter 2, verse 2, let's consider, because obviously a Pharisee would be under the, the whole world of Satan's influence as well, right? It's not a Jew-Gentile thing at all. It's the whole world. So let's consider instead that Jesus actually died for the sins of the whole world. Let's just consider that as a possibility. Now the limited atonement people would say, no, he didn't do that. If he died for the whole world, then the whole world is saved. And you'd be teaching universalism. Everybody would be saved. No, no, that's not what you have to be saying. Not at all. There's an old doctrinal formula that goes way back regarding the atonement that I think accounts for all of scripture and we can rest very safely there. The formula says that Christ's death for sin is real and it is sufficient for all mankind, but it is efficient, that is it works, for those who believe, for the elect. That is the old formula. Sufficient for all, efficient for the elect, or those who believe. It was sufficient for all because of Christ's infinite worth. This isn't anybody dying, this isn't some guy dying for, this is the infinite God taking on humanity to die for the world. He is of infinite worth. There's, there's no value. You can't even add value to him because he is all value. But the limited atonement folks believe, they also believe it was of infinite worth, but they push that farther in saying if it was a real atonement and it's for everyone, then Jesus' blood purchased the salvation of people who are not saved. That's what they would say. And then they would ask this question. How can we say the sins of Judas were atoned for? Or Caiaphas, or pick somebody. They always pick Judas because he's a bad guy. Well, Christ's atonement was sufficient to cover the sin of Judas. But Judas has to repent and believe to receive its benefits, to have the debt paid for him. Christ paid the debt for the whole world. But you have to b believe to receive that payment for yourself. Ju Judas did not do that. Judas was not elect. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus specifically says Judas was not among the elect. He was not chosen. So sometimes the limited, ato the limited atonement folks, sometimes they say things that really sound like, I mean, it really sounds like it. And I'd love to have that conversation with somebody, but I haven't had an opportunity yet. But it sounds like they're saying that the elect, the chosen, were saved at A.D. 33 when Jesus was dying on the cross. That they were saved then. But that's not true. That's not true. 
you were not saved before you existed. And you were not saved before you believed. That's really wrong thinking, but they really get pretty close to saying that. There's an order to salvation, an order. You are saved when you believe. Before that, guess what? You were headed for destruction. We sing songs about that all the time. God does elect us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God elected me in Christ before the foundation of the world. But if I had died before I became a Christian, I mean, that wouldn't happen because he elected me. But if I did, I, was not, I would not be saved until I came to Christ. That's when his atoning death was applied to me. And God works out all those things in his great providence. But I, I can't say I was saved when I was 14 or when I was 16 or when I was 18. Because I, well, maybe when I was 18. I was getting there. But <laughs> it's applied when you believe. So if you think of sin as a debt, a debt that we owe to the justice of God, and Jesus calls sin a debt, right, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, right? Paul in Colossians chapter 2 calls sin a debt that's nailed to the cross, right? So if you think of his atonement as sufficient to pay the debt of everyone, the whole world, but the debt is only paid for us individually if we repent and believe. So it's sufficient for all of us, his debt. He covers the whole debt. But he's not paying our debt unless we repent and believe out of that sufficiency. That's the idea. That's a pretty simple idea, and I don't think it's hard. Um, limited atonement Calvinists say that the atonement is only theoretical. If we, say, if we say it covers everybody, then we're saying that he didn't really die for people. It, it's just a theoretical thing. No, no. It's never only potential. Especially if you believe in the other four points of TULIP. It's not potential. It's guaranteed. The effectiveness of the atonement, its effectiveness, is guaranteed. It's assured if unconditional election is true, if God chooses us based on his own sovereign will, and if irresistible grace is true, that God is going to awaken the heart and bring us to himself, and if perseverance of the saint is true, he's going to keep us forever. If those things are true, there's nothing theoretical about the atonement. It's based on these other aspects of God's plan for us. So God's election to eternal life from eternity past makes the atonement definite. You don't have to come up with a new theory of the definiteness of the atonement. It's not potential at all. It's very definite. And every time I read the arguments of limited atonement people, and people I respect greatly, I just want to add that in there. I respect those people greatly. I've learned so much from those folks. But I look at all the verses in support of it, and it's like, no, no. That's just talking about the effect of unbelievers, that believers benefit from all of these things. And I look at their logic because they really push the logic aspect of it very heavily. I, I just don't see it. I don't see the logic of it. They're making claims that just don't seem to, to have any kind of weight to them. And I wouldn't be hard to convince because I agree with these people about so many other things. It'd be really easy to convince me, but it just isn't there. So the bottom line is there's no scripture that says Jesus died only for the elect. Never says that. And there are a number of scriptures like 1 John 2, 2 that say he died for the whole world. So when you do theology, what are you supposed to do? So if you have a given subject of theology, you're supposed to take all the passages in the whole Bible that relate to that 
and bring them together and say, how do these all work together? Because God is not the author of confusion. It's going to make sense or some way it all makes sense. So let's so say you bring it all together. Some texts say very clearly Christ died for us. Christ died for believers. Christ died for the church. Some texts say, and there's a lot of them, that he died for everyone or he died for all or he died for the whole world. Can both be true? Yeah. And it's really not that complicated. Sufficient for all efficient for the elect. Look, I consider myself a Calvinist not because I'm tied to a theological system, but simply because I find the main tenets of it to be very firmly grounded in Scripture, the teaching of the Bible. Limited atonement is anything but firmly grounded in the clear teaching of the Bible. It's more of a logical implication to some people's thoughts. They're worried about Arminians. And Arminians are the guys that created the original five points that the canon of Dort responded to. They're fighting against them. So, they believed in a universal atonement, so they're, they think they need to say a limited atonement to argue with them. And if you do disagree with me on anything I've said today, that's fine. <laughs> Better people than me disagree with me. I read five-point Calvinists. I love five-point Calvinists. I'm a big Jonathan Edwards fan, and I'm a big R.C. Sproul fan. They're just wrong on this, in my opinion, right? <laughs> And I love the Calvinist creeds. I read creeds for fun. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. I mean, masterpieces of reformed thinking. But, but, I weigh everything with scripture. I weigh everything with scripture. And I don't agree with almost all of these guys on baptism either. I think they're all messed up on that. They don't understand believers' baptism. They're baptizing babies. So, you know what? They can be wrong. We're all supposed to be Baptists here too. But if they can baptize their baby, I'm not mad at them for that. Baptize your baby. I love you. I love your writings. But you're wrong about that. <laughs> and I don't agree with them on limited atonement either. I just don't think it covers the weight of scripture. It, it, uh, there's so much against it in the Bible. So anyway, I just don't think uh, this theology lines up with the Bible in this one area. But I really appreciate them and all these other things. Okay, if I talked long enough? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> How you do theology matters. And how you approach the Bible matters. And it always starts with the Bible. Not bringing a system to the Bible. You want to read the Bible for itself. Let's pray. Our great Father, our salvation is such a wonderful gift. And it is a gift. And it is assured by the all-sufficient Savior who, whose blood was shed for our salvation. But we needed your gracious action in us for us to even see it and respond to it. You opened our eyes. You offer all these things to us. And we offer to you eternal thanksgiving for such a great gift, such love. It melts our hearts. It overwhelms us. And today, just thinking about these things and the worthiness of Christ to bear our sin, we ask that you help us live in a manner that's worthy of his sacrifice. Let us love one another with the love of God and in no way diminishing in anything Christ has done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.